Hello, everybody. You're listening to a Bitcoin and Markets live stream. My name is Ansel Lindner, and on this show, I give you a unique perspective on Bitcoin, macro, and geopolitics. You can find me all over. Follow me on Twitter at Ansel Lindner. The Telegram channel is doing really well, so go to t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets to join there to listen to these live streams live. You can find the show in any podcast app. Just search for Bitcoin and Markets or go to bitcoinandmarkets.com forward slash find dash us and you can find most big podcast apps will be listed there. We're also on Rumble and Odyssey so you can find our channels and go subscribe and give us likes so we can um, reach more people over there on those video apps. We have lost our YouTube channel. And lastly, make sure you're subscribed over on bitcoinandmarkets.com to get notified of all of my content. All right. Let's jump in to today's topics. That's my new stock intro. All right, today's show is a little bit different. I had two streams, one in the morning that I had to cut short, and then I came back in the evening and we had a nice long discussion with some Q&A from Carlo. So it's really good. It gets really good towards the end. So stick through the entire episode. It's a little bit longer, but uh, it should be well worth the listen. Without further ado, let's go. All right, let's get started, guys. Hope you guys are doing well on this Monday, November 28th, 2022. If you're in the U.S., hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Sorry for leaving you guys about, what is this, five days, four days between pieces of content, but I'm back. And we should just take a look around uh, at the markets, at Bitcoin, and see what is going on. So, as you know, every Monday is my newsletter day. So I'm going to go through some of the stuff I've written up for that. <laughs> As I did say in the Telegram, I my car, well, it was actually my wife's car, uh, crapped out. And so I've had to be working on that a little bit today in the driveway. And then uh, that's been cutting into some of my research time or writing time, whatever. But I have uh, finished the headlines. So the biggest headline is this Jason Lowry thing with... Marty Bent, at least that's the biggest thing I've noticed over the last few days. I mean, there have been large Twitter spaces and they keep rehashing the same thing, like FTX this, FTX that, there's contagion. Why isn't uh, Sam Bankman arrested? Yada, 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 just on and on and on, droning on and on and on. And one of the things that you get from that is the extension of FUD and rumors to include sound businesses and sound projects. And I wrote about that as well, like the wrapped Bitcoin. I'm not a fan of it, okay? I mean, I'm not I'm not, not a fan of it because it's understandable why Ethereum would want to put a Bitcoin derivative on their network. It's totally understandable. But, you know, it's not a solution to any big-time problems. It doesn't mean that uh, Ethereum is better than any other altcoin or anything like that. It's just that... Uh, it's it's centralized, right? They they have this wrapped Bitcoin that is custodied by BitGo, I believe. And so they have all these wrapped Bitcoins um, and it's just secured by a cryptographic signature like everything else. Um, and so people are worried about the solvency of this wrapped Bitcoin because the FUD just keeps extending as people hash, you know, go on and on about 
FTX and about Sam Bankman and why isn't he arrested? I mean, I, I totally agree. Don't get me wrong. He should be arrested immediately. I'm not surprised that he is not arrested. I even said this on FedWatch two, I think it was two weeks ago. Uh, CK and I were just starting to talk about this FTX thing. I was like, you know, he probably has secrets about everybody. And so he's not going to, they're not going to arrest him. They're not going to go after him because of all the secrets that he has. And that's exactly what's turning out to be that they might not ever go after him. I mean, they're writing puff piece after puff piece. Um, But if you continue to spiral down and, and concentrate on that, then you start extending it into rumors, into areas that don't deserve it. And Tether is the perennial one. Okay, of course, the rumors are just going to go right to Tether. Tether's insolvent. It's a bubble waiting to blow up. I mean, people that are only tangentially, like I still listen to some gold and silver content. Uh, not much, but I do. And they have kind of bought into Bitcoin a little bit, but they constantly fud about Tether. They see Tether as the source of their manipulation. Because, you know, the gold bugs are are obsessed with gold being manipulated for decades. And it's just this huge conspiracy to keep the price of gold suppressed and to keep the dollar. The dollar Ponzi will eventually explode and, and all this stuff. Um, and so when they look at Bitcoin, they, they already are looking with these glasses of manipulation and uh, like irrational manipulation in my mind and so they look at tether and they'll be oh well definitely that's the source look at 60 billion of course that's the source of manipulation right there and so even from that side of the house you tether gets attacked tether gets attacked from bitcoiners because the hardcore bitcoiners that obviously think bitcoin is the best which it is but still they they attack everything else as a shitcoin and i don't see tether i don't put tether as a shitcoin um well, kind of, if you put the U.S. dollar as a shitcoin, then Tether is just a derivative of a shitcoin. But you know what I mean? It's not like an altcoin. It is a centralized dollar derivative. Um, and, and of course, then you have the other side, which is, I think, this conspiracy with USDC. Uh, USDC has always wanted to knock Tether down a peg and take over as the dominant the dominant stablecoin, and so a lot of the source of the FUD, I think, stems from people around USDC. And now we can add on to this: like, why is the New York AG going after Tether, but not FTX? Right? I mean, they've spent so many, so much time and taxpayer dollars to go after Tether that is solvent. It's been solved. It's proved itself solvent time and time again. But it they continue to go after it, but they don't go after Sam Bankman. So that kind of reveals some of like Tether is not on their side. Tether is not on the side of the regulators. It's not on the side of the globalists. It's on the side of Bitcoiners. And and here we run into this other. <laughs> I think I mentioned this on the very last live stream was the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that's what Tether is. So I'm not a Tether necessarily 
supporter or anything, but I'm not at all a fudster on Tether. I think it's solvent. I think it's just fine. Uh, and then if, so we have Rap Bitcoin and Tether. They don't deserve to have this, uh, these rumors like this spread, just like I don't think GBTC does either. And I don't think Coinbase does either. So none of these big players where these rumors have extended to um, really, well, maybe, I don't know if deserve is the right word, but the rumors are false in this case. So um, we have noticed a lot of, at least I have, let a lot less of like new news. Of course, we have BlockFi filing for bankruptcy, but we knew that was coming. And so there's not a lot of, the next shoe hasn't, it either hasn't dropped or it's not going to drop. And uh, the price is still sticking around 16,000. It hasn't performed great. It hasn't performed poorly. It's just sitting there waiting. And that usually means that there's more downside, but we will see. We'll see. Um, in this environment, honestly, we are in uncharted waters here with Bitcoin right now. We definitely are. And we don't know what is coming next. I mean, seriously, there could be a announcement by Janet Yellen or Powell or anybody, uh, even somebody in some other foreign country like Hungary or uh, Belarus or Russia or whatever that comes out and says, hey, we're going to be adding Bitcoin as legal tender. Boom. Price shoots up. So. We don't know what's coming next. This is uncharted waters for Bitcoin. We're kind of out of the cycle timing a little bit here. Um, we do have some room, obviously, till the next halving. When is the next ETA for the next halving? Let me look that up real quick. So the ETA is about February of 2024. And this is right around the time that we would be bottoming if that halving cycle is correct. Um it makes sense as well because we also have miners capitulating and well, miners selling a lot of their Bitcoin. And that go, you know, the, the having cycle is part and parcel of this whole mining minor capitulation discussion. So um, that's something to be watching as well. But anyway, yeah, we are in uncharted waters here with Bitcoin and that's, I didn't tune in, obviously, to the Marty Bent thing with Jason Lowry. I don't know if you guys did there uh, that are listening there on Telegram. Twitter spaces never booted up. So what the fuck? Um, but we'll see. I'll listen to it tonight. Take a gander. I don't like the violence aspect of what he's saying because I agree with other Bitcoiners that are saying it's going to attract attention, negative attention from regulators if we build this up as violence. I mean, it's uh, just one of the things I always think about. I think about this actually quite a bit, guys. I'm weird, but Wei Dai and on the Wei Dai paper for B money, I'm going to look up the exact quote here because it's powerful and it, it paints Bitcoin or it paints this technology as the opposite of violence. So let me load this up here. What is going on with my internet? I just got fiber in the house as well. And my computer's running fast, but now my phone's running slow. Anyway, he says something like um, he's fascinated by crypto anarchy because it brings about a situation where government violence isn't reduced or whatever, but it's made impossible 
right? It's made impossible because there's nobody to attack, you know, with this, uh, with cryptography, you don't know who's sending what, where, uh, messages specifically Wei Dai was talking about. Um, but he tried to build it into a thing like Bitcoin. And so he's specifically talking there about that violence is made impossible. So it's, it's a negation of state violence. It's not a, it's not a violence itself. It's like if my kid would get really mad at me and start trying to punch me and I wrap up their hands and hold their hands together. I'm not committing violence against my child. I'm holding them. I'm stopping them from committing violence. So that that's a big, big difference uh, in the way you need to view this. And anyway, um, what do I think of Jason Lowry? I mean, I've talked about him in the past. He seems extremely conceited at this, at this point um, that his view of a military perspective of, the, of Bitcoin is the, the correct one and the superior one. It's, of course, not the only one. And I mean, I have a background. It, I don't know how long he's been in the military, but I was in the military for 10 years and I look at things, certain things from a military perspective but I don't see Bitcoin at all in that way. I don't see proof of work at all in that way. It's it's just like a competition, okay? Like just like anything in a market is competition. When you have scarce resources, you have a competition. And yes, militaries are do go out and seize those resources. And sometimes, I don't know if I've talked about this in the past, but sometimes that's actually an efficient way to do it because um if the expense to some places are just too expensive to develop, like I've said uh, that certain geographies do not lend themselves to economic development very easily, like the middle of the Sahara desert or the top of the Himalayas, they just won't ever be super economically advanced because it's too damn expensive to do it there. To, to develop them. And the only way they actually get developed is by the rest of the world pulling them forward, right? Like now the Sahara Desert can have communication because they have satellite phones, but they didn't launch just fucking satellites. Every, the other places did. Same with the Himalayas and the tundra, whatever. So these, these places get pulled along by the other places. Um, and if you are a mountain people, say you're, you're, in the Himalayas or your, your desert people like the Bedouins or the early Muslims, right? They were out of the Arabian desert. They can project power and take resources that they could never build up themselves. They could never do it. Right. That, so there is some role for that when you look at force projection and things like that. But I don't agree with Lowry's framing of proof of work. Maybe you guys have a different perspective of that. Um, or a different way to frame it, but that's how I kind of think of it. All right, what else do we have here from the report? Of course, I'm going to get this out ASAP. I have some other errands to run, and then I'm going to get back and finish this up. Um, of course, I write about India exploding, or sorry, <laughs> India, China exploding with all these riots. And man, oh man, does it feel good to predict this years ago. So if, if you go back to Bitcoin and markets, and you listen about two years, you go back two years ago and you look at some of my 
um, episodes, there was one called Thucydides Trap. And I've talked exactly about why China is not going to be a rising power. And actually, they're, they're the declining power and the U.S. is the rising power. It just depends on what time frame you use. If you use the last 50 years, yes. But if you use the last 500, no. I, I predicted this almost exactly what's going on here. I even said that the CCP is going to have a hard time keeping control of this place. And so in the report, I, I try to keep it very concise. I say, hey, here's a list. So if you take these protests alone, right, like go back to Tiananmen Square, 89, the economy was just starting to grow, right? Now we have a similar type of movement to this building, similar, not exactly the same by any means, but similar. And it's the opposite. It's the dec- It's happening in the decline. So obviously, I think it's just too obvious to say the CCP is going to have a hard time keeping control. But here's my list. I say, um, not only are we having these riots, but we have a hardcore communist resurgence with Xi getting his third term and, you know, really hammering home on the Marxist rhetoric and ideology. Uh, we have a real estate collapse and that sector accounts for 30% of GDP, 70% of personal wealth. Uh, low, it's a low middle income country and doesn't have reliable domestic consumers. So it needs to export. It needs the rest of the world. Uh, there's trade wars going on. Exports are plunging. They're down 12% right now, year over year, as of October. 12% down year over year, nominal. That's with a surging dollar. So it's probably 20, 25% real decline in exports. Massive credit overhang, utterly devastating demographics. And now, of course, you add the riots. So there, I don't think there is a way out. Um, uh, they continue to have the choice of loosening their communist ways and becoming Japan for 30, 40 years of stagnation because they have all this overbuilt capacity that, you know, they, they just had to work themselves out of this debt somehow. Um, or they become North Korea and they collapse themselves. Um, and everything that you look at, it's pointing towards the North Korea collapse. Some people will say they're going to end zero COVID. That's not coming anytime soon, not for several months, and the riots are going to continue going. So, and if they do, my my thing I always say is the communists will just find another shitty policy to implement. You know, they'll get rid of zero COVID, but then they'll start nationalizing industries. And that's not a joke. They'll do it. Um, anyway. Next story I have here a comment on is the World Cup. And the World Cup is becoming like a – it's it's surrounded by this tense global political climate. It started out with the LBGT flags on the uniforms and even shirts. I saw some fans being turned away at the gates because they were wearing rainbow shirts. Um then it was found that the Chinese were blurring the stands to not show the maskless faces. And if, if zero COVID was about to be over, why would they go to that level, that extent to blur the faces, of the, to blur the stands at the World Cup and to not show close-ups of fans in the stands like the TVs do, you know? I don't think they would do that if they're on the precipice of 
easing the zero COVID. Anyway, then today, now Iran was furious that the U.S. posted a flag or something. I don't know if it was a U.S. soccer team account or something. They posted a flag that deleted the Islamic symbol from the uh, Iranian flag. And they were calling for U.S. to be disqualified. I don't know. It's just crazy that this is appearing in sports. And I think that the Olympics in 2024 are going to be quite exciting. If if people even participate. It might be uh, where, I don't know, if China will even send people to the Olympic Games. Or if, you know, Iran or some other countries, Russia, somebody will boycott the Olympic Games. Obviously, that's happened a lot in the past. So, but it should be fun. Olympics coming up 2024. And lastly, on this kind of the headlines, the top section of the report, I talk about new Twitter signups, them being at all-time highs. And I think it's pretty awesome. Um, Musk, he isn't perfect, obviously, but he has been successful at pushing back a lot of the worst abuses of social media. And look at all of the stuff that's just in the last month that's broken on Twitter because of these things. We can talk about FTX. Imagine they have all this puff piece stuff from the mainstream media. What if Musk hadn't bought Twitter? Would it be censored? Would FTX story be censored on Twitter? It's possible. He seems to have friends in very high places, and they're very scared of whatever he has to say. So, crazy. Also, the Chinese riots, we probably wouldn't have seen those. So I think it's great. Twitter's having all-time high new accounts. Whether those are bot accounts or not, I don't know. I mean, I I don't even know what constitutes a bot account. I guess it would be algorithmically posting things. But I've done way back probably, let's see, how many years ago would that be? Six six or seven years ago, um, I was getting out of the military and I was learning to code. And I wrote a bot for Twitter. I wrote a couple bots for Twitter that you could ask the bot what was the price of Bitcoin and it would respond to you. And then I also wrote one that, oh, actually it wasn't a bot, but it was just like a music program that would listen to Twitter hashtag a Bitcoin and play music as tweets came in. So that was kind of interesting, but um, I don't know what, that's just a fun little project. How many actual bot accounts are like that? Um, Also, I have a Twitter account for, this the podcast BTC MRKTS is that considered an excess account or or what you know so who knows how they're really counting these new signups but it's good news I, I really like what's going on with Twitter anyway okay let's talk a little bit about the Bitcoin price and about macro I only have a couple minutes left sorry I'm not going to be able to get to uh, questions or comments today sorry about that but um. Let's take a look at the Bitcoin chart. I did post it this morning in Telegram. So let's take a look. And yeah, still 19,000 is the level to get to before we can get any sort of you know bullish feeling about the price. I haven't looked at the entries for the November um, prediction profit. So for the guys listening on the podcast, every month on Telegram now we're doing this prediction 
for the end of the month candle. And I'll, I post a form and then you guys fill out your form with your name and your guess. And then the closest person to the closing price on Bitstamp for the monthly candle, they win. They become the profit for the month. Just a little fun thing to do with the community. And so we'll see who wins it this year. If you guys want, or this month, if you want to join, if you listen on the podcast, just uh, hop on to Telegram, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. I'll also link it in, I'll link next month's form in the show notes here in the coming month. When when December starts, I'll, I'll link it down there for you guys to join. And I'll mention it on the next live stream, whatever. Okay, so Bitcoin is not doing so hot. It's got to get to 19,000. I don't see, like I said, it's it's kind of strong here at 16,000, uh, even though we have some just tons of negative sentiment, I would say. It's extremely bearish in the media, extremely bearish for minor, miners, extremely bearish for the industry right now. And Bitcoin is holding on to 16,000. It's actually quite amazing. This is the most bearish news I've ever seen in Bitcoin's history that I've been around and I've been around for about 10 years. So that's, that's saying something. Um, and when this turns around, holy cow, holy cow, it really could move very, very quickly in the other direction. What other charts did I put post the oil chart? I guess it's come back. Let me look at the live oil chart, but it's at 77,000 right now. And, or sorry, 77,000, uh, 77 spot two, two on the WTI. So $77 per barrel of WTI oil. And once again, I mean, there's no sign of impending rise in oil price. The only thing we hear now is about recession, 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 demand destruction everywhere. Lower demand everywhere. And there was just a story that I pulled up a couple minutes ago. This is oil rebound from China crash on OPEC plus production cut headlines. OPEC plus is going to cut production once again. And this is going to save the oil price. No, 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 no. I guess people don't understand that like OPEC has a vested interest in job owning the price up, keeping the price stable they want it right around here i remember this is probably 10 years ago now there's an interview with some saudi um high up people in the saudi royal family uh, that were in like running the oil industry over there and they were saying 80 dollars a barrel they thought was good for at that time so that's back you know 2012 or so and that was a good price for the global economy and that hasn't really changed I think they are shooting for a range around 80 bucks. And so every time they start coming out with these production cut headlines, it is because the price looks like it's crashing. Just notice that in the future. It, it's like clockwork. One more chart. Okay, the 10-year the and the 30-year are below the Fed funds range. Posted that chart as well this morning. The five-year is inside the Fed funds range. We still have uh, what day? It's going to be on the 14th of December is the FOMC. 13th of December is CPI. So that, that'll be a fun two days. <laughs> um, 
yeah, so we have that to look forward to, and we'll see if they raise rates. Um, I haven't checked the FedWatch site. Let me do that real quick. This is FedWatch CME tool, and again, they named it their FedWatch tool, I believe, after we named our podcast FedWatch, but let's see what it has. 67% right now is favoring a 50 basis point hike, and 32% are favoring a 75 basis point hike. So very interesting. That has changed about 5 or 10% in the last week. So looks like people are starting to lean a little bit more towards 75 than last week. Crazy, crazy. All right, that's where I'm going to cut it for today, guys. Thanks for joining me. Sorry I have to leave kind of abruptly here. Um, have a hard stop. And I will, perhaps I'll come on later tonight and do another live stream since this one was kind of short and sweet. But uh, thanks for joining me. Have a great rest of your week. Okay, how is everybody doing this evening? A little switcheroo on the time. So I did do a live stream earlier today at, I think it was about 2 p.m. Eastern. And I kind of had to end it abruptly. I had a crazy morning with some car issues. And so... I am coming back this evening to kind of fill that out a little bit and maybe open it up here for any comments you guys have, uh, any topics you want to bring up. We can chat for a little while here. Of course, what I didn't get to at that time was Jason Lowry's appearance on Marty Bent's podcast. And this whole thing started with Jason Lowry talking about violence, uh, that proof of work is violence. And they addressed that right up front, right at the beginning. Um, And I kind of went through this a little bit on a text post there on Telegram. So if you guys on spaces are not on Telegram, get to t.me forward slash Bitcoin and markets. I really, I only listened to the first 25 minutes um, because I was so busy today, but he kind of, I think, slithered out of his main point and that was to call proof of work violence and it's almost like so jarring or triggering to call it that that you know then he can slip in other associations um of course then he was self-deprecating as well saying that his smooth military brain couldn't comprehend or any other way to say it or whatever and so you know kind of slithering out of it right there I did want to know if he addressed the thing about blocking all the Bitcoin maximalists (laughs) in some sort of psyop there. And I thought that was interesting that he he said that on Twitter. Uh, Really, the more I listen to his content, the less I'm interested in it. You know, it's kind of unique and interesting, right, when you get exposed to it. But when you start breaking it down, it's just economics, right? It's just a like economics with a different mask on it. And where he does have some sort of unique thing is that he is actually in the Space Force. He's actually in the military, which is unique to to the space. And so I think that that is somewhat of a valuable voice, but he's not really saying anything new. So let me break down kind of what... Uh, oh, yeah, so this is what he said. He uh, Ken3D on Telegram who I think is in here. Let me check. So what's up, Ken? Said that 
because I asked if he questioned or if he talked about blocking people. And Ken responded that yes, at the very end. So I don't know, maybe I'll go back and listen to that. But his whole presentation is more provoking than provocative, though, I'd say. So, yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that comment. All right. Let's get into some of my points here on this. So, you know, he's kind of tricky. He's kind of flows around and uh, seems to have this very linear mind. And yeah, I guess that is the case with military people. And maybe one reason why I don't think I fit in all that well, even though I stayed for 10 years. Um, It's very linear thinking. And so he has this idea about abstract power versus physical power and that they are opposites, but they really aren't right. Abstract power is maintained through physical power, through physical power projection turned internally. So it doesn't really fit when he's talking about these cycles of abstract hierarchies and that they continue to get more and more corrupt until you need to resort to violence to project power and reset the hierarchy. That's not the case because uh, abstract hierarchies are maintained at the point of a gun. They are built off of a monopoly on the projection of force. So I don't think you can separate abstract and physical hierarchies. Now, he he likes to break it down with saying that um, it, it's a concept, right? Like the, it's a shared illusion sort of thing that there is this thing called government. You can't touch government. You can see government, but you can't like feel it. It's, it's an abstract thing. But it's maintained through very, very visible things like riot cops, police, IRS agents <laughs> who eventually come with guns to arrest you. So... No, this abstract hierarchy is enforced through physical violence. So they're not mutually exclusive. And it's not at all linear. So another thing is that he kind of believes this, this linear thinking makes you believe that all of these different periods of this cycle, for so for everybody on the planet, is all in this sort of cycle together or maybe even in the side of a country is in this cycle together when that's, that's not the case either. <laughs> so every country is slightly different, you know, and it's driven by, again, the geography of where you're at, your neighbor's cycle, uh, what cycle you're on. And so I don't have to rehash that. If you want to hear that exact argument, I, I talked about that when I, uh, debunked one of his images that he had from the other day, or not debunked, but, you know, um, push back on one of his images that he shared on Twitter the other day. So, um, and there can be partial resets, which he doesn't even consider. So a partial reset would be, you know, like <laughs> MAGA getting power, or uh, maybe even John F. Kennedy getting assassinated. Something like that. Or the I guess the Civil War isn't necessarily a partial reset. That's a pretty full reset. But you can see other things like even the rise of the anti-war movement against Vietnam and getting out of Vietnam. That was somewhat of a, a partial reset. World War II, even though we didn't have any violence like war on U.S. 
well, we did, I guess, with Pearl Harbor. But you know what I mean? It was mainly out over there in Europe and in the Pacific and not in the homeland. So that is kind of a partial reset as well. But yeah, partial resets are everywhere. Everyone, Everyone's not synced up on the same same cycle. And when people are let free, the only way that we were synced up on the same cycle, now this is an important point, is that we were synced up on a cycle, just like every other abstract hierarchy is synced up through physical force. So they're not mutually exclusive. They are one in the same thing. I mean, when a king, like he likes to go back to ancient times, right? So let's say a king takes over. Well, what's the best way to easily maintain power? He, he physically took power through conquest, and now he's going to make himself a god and set up an abstract hierarchy. And what does he use to maintain that abstract hierarchy? Is more physical force, physical projection. So they're the same thing. They're the, they're the two sides of the same coin. They are not different at all. Um, what else did I say about this? Okay, about the nukes. So this is getting into roughly minute 20 when he's wrapping up a lot of his points here, his initial points with Marty. And uh, he talks about nukes are kind of limiting the use of force or at least a use of force as a reset to the abstract hierarchy. Um, I I kind of agree with that. I've said that for decades probably that that nuclear war actually has put an end to major, major world wars. That, but that still doesn't negate using of nukes. So you can use maybe uh, the instead of inventing Bitcoin and, and pushing proof of work as this violence thing, uh, then you could actually make smaller and smaller nukes. You could make different ways to do force force projection, and they're definitely going to do that. I mean, force projection has always been a cost-benefit analysis, as he says. Well, it's just that the nukes, they have a different cost-benefit analysis. They aren't special. They're they're still in the same line of thinking, and humans will just adapt and make a different type of way to project their power that is a better cost-benefit ratio. All right, uh, number four I have down here is, he says the masses don't have a realistic way to stand up against a nuclear-powered state. And that is absolutely, completely wrong. What happened with the Soviet Union? It collapsed. The people pushed back on the state constantly. You know, they wanted to do the vaccine mandate. People pushed back against that in the United States. American citizens pushed back against the most powerful country, state, abstract power structure in Lowry's terms in the world. We pushed successfully pushed back and they failed to implement this nationwide vaccine mandate. So of course the people have a realistic way to stand up against a nuclear powered state. And also there's nothing special about a nuclear powered state that makes the discrepancy of power with their citizens any different. Like a non-nuclear power state can, you know, repress their people, probably repress their people more than a nuclear-powered state. Because once you become a nuclear-powered state, you've had to 
reached some level of industrialization. You've had to reach some level of middle income area where your your citizens have a little bit more of a middle class and a little bit more push against the central power. So, no, I would say that non-nuclear states are actually more, there's a larger discrepancy between the power of the central state versus its citizenry in a non-nuclear state than there is in a nuclear state. Um, so that is actually exactly backwards from what he says. So anyway, that's all I have to say about Jason Lowry. Maybe I watched the uh, rest of it in the end, but I don't know if I'm going to spend much more time on on his stuff. We'll see what he comes up with in in his paper whenever that gets released, if it gets released, if it's not some sort of confidential or some, you know classified in some way. But anyway, okay, let's move on to a response I had on Twitter. And this is from Citadel 21. Are they listening on, on Twitter? No. Okay, so Citadel 21 is one of my guys that constantly pushed back on my stuff, and I appreciate that for sure. It keeps me honest here. But um, we were having a little back and forth about China, and I tweeted out yesterday that let's say the China protests fizzle out, and after a brief period, the CCP and Xi decides to end COVID zero. What makes anyone think that the communists won't just roll out roll into the next horrible economic policy. The China miracle is over. <laughs> and uh, Citadel 21 responded saying, the U.S. government spending as a percentage of GDP and taxes exceed China now. They're both central planners and socialists now. Are you sure U.S. central planners are better? San Francisco spent millions to in, uh, install one bathroom and millions more for guaranteed income for transgendered. I mean, I get this argument, and I actually remember making very similar arguments to people not more than five years ago because I thought that the U.S. government, uh, the U.S., I guess, entity, uh, was the same as, say, a China entity or a CCP entity in repression and, and all this stuff. But, of course, that's that's false. Um we have a lot more freedoms over here. Just take a look at their internet, right? Take a look at what they're doing with the World Cup and blurring out the stands so that the people don't see the maskless faces. Of they they have the social credit system. They they're forced to in middle school and stuff. They're forced to read a book, a communist manifesto by Xi Jinping. So no, they do not have. The same, nearly the same. Plus, um, the U.S. worker is the most productive worker in the world, and they're seven times more productive per capita than the CCP. So this was my response. The U.S. is seven times more productive per capita, and the CCP welds their people in burning apartments. Where would you put your capital? <laughs> and then he says, uh, by that rationale, no one would ever invest in a developing economy. The best performing stock markets in history started from a base of low productivity and rights standards. Now, I'll respond to this. He has a couple of these here, but um, that's that's true. Most Not that no one would ever invest, but many fewer people would invest in, in emerging economies or developing economies than they do today. 
but the reason why there is so much investment, well, there's a couple of reasons. One is the ability, the kind of artificial ability to expand credit based on a credit-based system. So we need to find productive uses of credit. And since the West, a lot of these uses are tapped out, right? There is no more place to stuff productive, uh, stuff credit to pull productivity out. It's been so suppressed and, and used up that, yeah, then the emerging markets show a little bit more uh, productivity gains, a little bit more. They look a little bit better, but it's also based on the international institutions that have been set up. You know, they're members of the UN, they're members of the WTO. They have to follow certain rules. They have to obey the world court. They have to have certain things, uh, boxes checked with their economy. And so that is an artificial way. I mean, it, it's, it's a real way, but it's not technically a market-driven way. It's a central planned way to mit mitigate risk of inv investing in these developing economies. So, yes, of course, no one or very few people would invest in developing economies if we didn't have this certain system that we have today. So, yeah, that's that's part of my argument. All right, what else does he have to say here is, okay, the, here's another one of, to this, he doesn't thread the tweets, he just responds again to the same, um, my same tweet. And he says, the same investment newsletter which said BTC could be a world reserve currency back in 2011, when it was just pennies, is now forecasting a multi-decade bull market in Chinese stocks. If your worldview of China is right, though, Chinese stocks should soon be zero. Not necessarily. I mean, there can be manipulation of, of Chinese stocks. That You know, when COVID happened, what did they do? The first thing they did was outlaw short selling. You couldn't sell short. So, of course, when you have, when the, the governments, which all governments can do this, right? But when the governments can change the rules and not allow people to sell, then yeah, it can continue to go higher. But this, whatever this inter investment newsletter, um, if they think that they're going to be able to invest in Chinese stocks and actually get their money out, they're kidding themselves. They're kidding themselves. I mean, a lot of people were talking about world reserve currency of Bitcoin back in 2011. I wasn't, I wasn't in Bitcoin yet. But as soon as I was in Bitcoin, I was saying that because everyone was saying it. It's not like it's super special that these guys were were saying Bitcoin could be a world reserve currency back in 2011. Um, but now if they're forecasting a multi-decade bull market in Chinese stocks, maybe, but it will all be fake. You know, they're they're about to proceed onto this uh, nationalization wave. They're going to be nationalizing companies like Tencent and I mean, Foxconn is Taiwanese, and they, they wouldn't have any problem with nationalizing a Taiwanese company in this environment. So they're going to be nationalizing a bunch of companies, the largest companies, and um, make it much more in the mold of a communist, communist state. All right, what else did he have to say? He said China's government might be the most meritocratic government on the planet. It's not like other dictatorships where party rank is largely inherited. Rank in CCP is 
heavily performance-based like a corporation. Western governments are full of unqualified grifters. Now, this is just totally false. You know, Xi Jinping came up through the Shanghai clique, they call them. These different cliques, they're like the warlords. If you go back in Chinese history and you look into like the warlord period, they had all these different warlords that controlled their areas. And the the most powerful and the most influential throughout the last few hundred years has been the Shanghai group. And Xi came up with the Shanghai group. Same with, uh, what's that guy's name? Jin Tao, the one that he just <laughs> had purged in public during the 20th Party Congress. He was the part of the Shanghai group as well. And I'm looking at these protests, you know, part in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, well, what if Jin Tao's people are stoking this? What if they're pushing this forward? And that would exactly fit in with the history of China, with the rise of these warlords and the this, you know, uh, decentralization of power into many different provinces. But anyway, Xi came up as part of the Shanghai clique. And he was brought in as a yes man, basically. And he played that role until he got a chance at power. And he was conniving and just like all politicians, yes, conniving and backstabbing enough to to seize control. But now he's had these great purges where he's arrested, I don't know, millions of people in the last few years, millions of people and political opponents, right? The men of Jintao, the men of all the other uh, cliques that are in China. So no, he he didn't necessarily get ahead by, <laughs> I mean, yeah, he got ahead first by working his way through this uh, heavily, like very much similar to a um, organized crime unit. That's That's what the Chinese Communist Party is like, is organized crime. And it's it is kind of meritocratic but it's meritocratic in a different way it's in the most conniving way so anyway that's what citadel 21 had to say and i appreciate his comments and him pushing back on me um another one was from um gabriel divine old school bitcoiner that was on world crypto net a few times we together we were on um vortex's channel quite a bit back in the day and uh, he was responding to one of my tweets. Let me pull this up here if I can find it quickly. Actually, I'm going to go to my likes because I just I think I just liked the comment. There it is. So uh, he said, China lockdown protests seem like a suspiciously predictable outcome of ridiculous government policy. They may be looking for the excuse to ratchet up to the next level of rigid communist societal control but seems like an awfully risky game to play, regardless, reeks of desperation. And I totally agree with that. Um, it is suspiciously predictable, but I think it's suspiciously predictable because they're commies. Communists are predictable. We know their exact playbook. And these guys, well, let me get into this a little bit more. I say, yeah, it was predictable. Communists aren't the brightest. No need to give the CCP too much credit. And he says, group think at its worst, question mark. It's hard to imagine they're that dumb. And I said, the same reason Xi loves Marx and calls him the greatest thinker in history, they blindly believe in the planned economy. 
Gabriel responds, I always assumed that was empty rhetoric to cover the desire to centralize power as fully as possible, like all communism. You think they actually buy buy it at the top levels? I'm skeptical. So, yeah, I'm. it's hard to say, right? Um, but that book that recently came out, Mass Formation by Desmond, um, he, he's a psychologist or I think a psychologist. And he says um, that the, in these mass formations, the ruler is actually equally entranced, that they are equally as hypnotized as the masses. They believe their own bullshit. And so I, I truly think that the Marxists, the technocrats, many of them at least, truly buy into the planned economy. They truly think that they can get to the promised land. They can get to the communist utopia. They know the, the formula. And if they don't know the formula, they have the best intentions out of anybody on the planet. They're special. They are special. They believe they're as special as the masses believe that they're special and that they can lead them. So, yes, I, I do think the Marxists, many of the most powerful Marxists, they truly believe in their ability to centrally plan. And we see this in China. We see this in Europe. We see this everywhere. So, yeah, that's what I'd have to say about that. All right. Um, what else? I'm going to open this up to guys on Telegram. So if you're listening on Twitter Spaces, welcome. This is, uh, well, my name is Ansel Lindner with Bitcoin and Markets, and this is a Telegram live stream, but I simulcast it onto Spaces. So what I do here is I open up the mic if anybody has a comment to make or change the subject or a topic to bring up, whatever. Uh, we can do that for a few minutes here, and I will relay the comments to Twitter Spaces, if at all possible. So, all right, let's see. Anybody have a hand raised? While I'm waiting for that, just to rehash what we covered was I went through Lowry stuff, then I uh, responded to a few comments from tweets and things I thought was interesting, mainly about this China stuff, because like I've said many times, China is probably the biggest geopolitical happening in our generation or this generation in the last 20 years or so. So I think 9-11 maybe was the biggest kind of geopolitical event prior to that. Maybe the great financial crisis, but the collapse of China is going to be massive, massive. So, the, oh, here we go, Carlo. What's up, Carlo? You got to unmute yourself. Can you hear me now? Yes, sir. Gotcha. I have a question for you, Ansel. Okay. Uh, could you could you expand a little bit on how you will see a world where Bitcoin is becoming? prominent how credit will work oh great question great question okay so for guys on spaces uh carlo asked in a world where bitcoin becomes dominant how will credit work and yeah that's another topic that we've been talking about recently and um so <laughs> i guess i can break into what i said earlier this morning as well a little bit on telegram or typed on telegram um but yeah bitcoin will so first off credit is credit expands when there is trust when there's trust available 
over the last 50 years, 75 years, trust has been kind of provided by this, these large international institutions and uh, globalization and a lot of the easy returns. So we had all of this technological advancement and, you know, from cellular technology to sanitation, fertilizers, there's all sorts of inventions that have come around in the last 50 years, obviously, telecommunications um, that have created low hanging, hanging fruit. Like I said earlier this morning about how the people in, in the middle of the desert, like the Bedouin culture, they can now be as connected as anybody else on the planet due to satellite technology and the Internet and stuff where that wasn't the case in the past. So a lot of these places, they had low hanging fruit and credit was easily expandable into that. So even without Bitcoin, we would be going into a period now where the world has basically been saturated. There's not a lot of technological advances to um, continue to milk. Of course, we have some AI and I have thoughts about AI. Um, I don't think it's anywhere near like a reality and even in a reality um i mean an ai would be communist if they don't have any respect for money <laughs> so <laughs> ais would have to use money somehow and uh that so if yeah if there is going to be a benevolent ai it would need to use bitcoin that's that's one big thing so yeah and even without bitcoin we are coming up to a period where credit will contract dramatically in the world and that's deflationary um globalization will break down and and not 100 percent, but probably 50 percent of global trade will go away i think in the next couple decades or maybe 25 years something like that so the way bitcoin works with with credit is that um Obviously, there is going to be commodity credit, and Caitlin Long does a good job of describing this with saying that, or yeah, saying that uh, commodity credit is through savings. So first, somebody has to save that Bitcoin before they lend it out. So it's like full reserve lending, and so that will definitely be available. Um, but then there's going to be other places that actually use paper Bitcoin, and that would be um, most likely, I mean, it'll be probably everywhere to a degree. Um, and that can be like, you can take a, say, you bank with Bank of America or something. You could take a loan from Bank of America and pay for Bitcoin. And as long as you are using their credit card and they can settle Bitcoin in the background, um, then there will still be some role of pure financialized credit in the world that most of that will take place though in poorer places i think because the wealthier places have more abundance of savings to lend out so i would say that and then the credit the credit that's financialized credit it's going to be much less stable than it is today because today we are that the global credit is based on these international institutions that are breaking down and that your neighbor is not going to attack you, right? Or you're not going to lose power. Your government isn't going to be overthrown. And so 
there's those those that's the world that's coming back is it's going to be a much more violent world in a lot of the country in a lot of the world and so credit will be much less stable so there'll be these financial places that have an abundance of savings and they can have a lot more commodity credit uh, and they will grow they'll innovate they'll be dynamic and then some of the poorer places they will rely more on financialized credit uh, unbacked credit paper bitcoin and also inflation so they will have this paper bitcoin that they will print and so that will be around those economies and but it will be much less stable than today so they'll they'll have a lot of volatility in their economies um and so the the a lot of people say bitcoin fixes this that bitcoin is going to bring up the little guy uh bitcoin is going to be very good for africa right or uh, very good for a lot of the poor people around the world. And I am totally not in that camp. I think that Bitcoin sound money actually exacerbates the differences. Um, and wealthier places will continue to get wealthier and poor places will actually have a harder time because over the last 75 years with these international institutions and with the IMF, um, I mean, I know people have different opinions about the IMF, but uh, that is like um, they've been able to have some socialism. This is like global socialism is to give out these loans to countries and um, for the Western countries and the U.S. in particular to maintain this this global order of national uh, international institutions. Uh, well, when that is gone, um, those places won't get the loans that they need. They won't get the infrastructure. Uh, funding and etc. So there will be an exacerbation of inequality in the world between the rich countries and the poor countries. And even within a country, there will be a lot of inequality. Um, I mean, maybe today we have extreme inequality with Elon Musk, you know, having $200 billion and most people don't have $500 in their savings account. But There'll probably be more even distribution, but the, the actual inequality might be larger. So the the total distance between the poorest and the richest will be greater than today, but there will be uh, the distribution will be a lot more even. So that's my kind of idea of how Bitcoin comes into this, how Bitcoin interacts with a declining credit-based system and how bitcoin credit will kind of permeate the world and look different in different places um there will be paper bitcoin we can't stop that that's one of the things um i don't like about the arguments of full reserve people because there's no enforcement mechanism as far as i understand there's no enforcement mechanism it's just like we need to educate people that there needs to be full reserve well, I mean, the, well, first off, the market has an enforcement mechanism. It just really sucks. It's the boom-bust cycle, right? And there's no way to stop that from occurring. The only difference here is, like I said, the wealthier countries have an overabundance or a relative abundance of savings. So they will rely more on commodity credit than the poorer countries that have a relative scarcity of savings, that they aren't going to have the uh, fortune of having all of this uh, 
commodity credit. So I hope that makes sense. Um, I know it's not a rosy picture for a lot of places, but, you know, over the last 75 years, the the globalists, <laughs> and very in particular, probably over the last 40 years, I would say, the globalists have really crushed a lot of the beauty of this world. And, you know, people talk about the art. I mean, Saifedean made that famous with fiat art today. Uh, architecture, I follow a few accounts on Twitter that show, like, the beautiful architecture of the past and the modern architecture. And some of these things have been stamped out kind of as a byproduct of global communism, uh, global, global socialism. And yes, that people in poor countries might be better off per capita, uh, depending on how you measure that, because I mean, let me just finish this thought. So the, they might be better off per capita but they have lost their culture they've lost their language they've lost their family structures you know and that's that's a horrible thing as well at least in my mind the communists want you to be all good little worker bees and everyone to be the same smash out any differences you know use identity politics to smash out the identities and like Maloney says, Georgia Maloney in Italy, she's like, she can't say she's uh, a Christian, a mother, a woman. She can't say those things because uh, they those are the demonized identities. Um, so, yeah, poor places might be poor, but they, I think they'll have a higher quality of life, depending how you measure that. I mean, another, uh, uh, I guess, effect of the last few decades, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> affected the last two few decades has been, um, oh man, did I lose my train of thought? One second, searching for it here. Oh yes, okay. So the industrialization of these poor countries, what has happened? Well, they've had a babe, they've had a population boom and that's good because it means that they have, have a lower infant mortality rate, right? But now, like we talked about Burkina Faso a few days ago, and they have went from like 6 million people to like 28 million people or something, something crazy. And it's not really natural for them. It's not sustainable. Um, and they find out that they become extremely reliant on say fertilizers the fertilizer supply chain and so we create yes it's very good to lower infant mortality i 100 agree i have four kids and i can't imagine losing one or two of them that, that would be it, uh, the worst possible thing i can imagine but it also has created a world that is unsustainable and unbalanced so my kind of thing that I'm selling here <laughs> or not, I'm not selling anything other than my vision at this point. But uh, my vision here is that we will return to a more balanced world. Now that might not mean higher infant mortality. I hope it does not, but it definitely means something is got to change. Yeah. So I kind of went on a tangent there. I hope that was uh, entertaining and that answered your question, Carlo. 
Yes, absolutely. It was very, very clear. I appreciate your thoughts on the matter. If I can yes. follow up with uh, with another question, I don't know if sure. you... Uh, do, do you think uh, in uh, such a world uh, a, a, an internet economy will be possible or we will be fragmented uh, in mm. our the, the globalization uh, uh, tendency? Wow, that is a great question. Um, so the, to relay to Twitter spaces, Carlo asked, in such a world, how does the internet play into it? Can we have, can, so Carlo, am I saying this right? That um, in, the, in this world, <laughs> will the internet be possible or will it fragment? Is that your question? Yes. All right. Um, yeah, that's, man, that's a great question. I do think that there will be more control over the internet. Um, and mainly because I think, you know, as we get back, you know, we're in an unbalanced place. Okay. I have, like I said, I have four kids. They're American kids. They have their devices and I hate it, but I kind of have, they kind of have to have devices because one, their friends have devices. And I mean, when I grew up, if I wanted to hang out with my friend, I would pick up the landline and I would dial the number and I would talk to him. I said, Hey, let's meet at the basketball court or something. We don't even have a landline in my house anymore and neither do their friends. So how do they communicate? We tried it for a few years where uh, my wife would text their mom and they would try to set up a play date through a third party two through two third parties. And it didn't really work out too well. They were kind of being, you know, they weren't getting to hang out with their friends as much as say other kids or whatever. And that's one thing we wanted to push was, Hey, we want you to play outside. We want you to play with other people. We want you to not put your face in your screen. Right. And so we were pushing that idea, but at the same time, making it really hard for them to do that. So this is an unbalanced existence. It's, it's not going to work. I mean, we have such high suicide rates. We have high overdose rates. We have sick, sick governments that are even pushing like assisted suicide as healthcare, you know, and it's an unbalanced place. So I think technology, even though a lot of people think, oh, we're going towards a hyper AI metaverse and, you know, this utopia in the metaverse and stuff. I don't think so. I think in the next few decades, more and more people are going to unplug. And that is the way back to balance. So in this whole thing of finding balance culturally, finding balance uh, socially, uh, finding balance monetarily with a credit basis or out of a credit-based system into a sound money, Bitcoin, uh, things will will have to change. And so I, when I look at the, at the future, I'm trying to say, okay, well, how will, how will, like you say, the, the internet, how will that be part of our world in the future if we're returning to balance? And I would say we're going to be more and more unplugged. So it won't be as big of a concern. I mean, of course, many sectors, many industries must be, must be connected, but perhaps there will be more government regulation to institute the cultural norm that we want to have uh, 
you know, separated internets. Uh, there's also the risk of like ransomware and cyber war and all of these things that might force people down the road towards separating the internet internets, um, at least having a much less attack surface area in your life to your device, to your access to global news um, and that kind of thing. But it, it will never go away. I mean, it's the Pandora's box is opened. I just think that we're going to go back to a more balanced place. And to me, that is, there's going to be less being, you know, people are going to unplug more. And also governments will, I mean, yes, governments are inefficient. And I think they attract the worst type of people, like power hungry people. But they also have this weird way of over a period of time, the people can have some uh, institute some social norms through through their governments, at least their local governments, right? And so the the local governments or the regional governments and or even the national governments, they might have regulation that institute new cultural norms that separate things. And maybe they'll have to be forced to do that because of the ransomware and cyber attacks. Uh, we'll see. But uh, I hope that answers your question, Carlo. Perfect. Thank you. Yes, sir. All right. Well, I see a bunch of people are jumping onto Twitter spaces. Just to let you know, my name is Ansel Linder. This is Bitcoin and Markets. I do these daily live streams pretty much every weekday. Uh, you can do uh, join over on Telegram, t.me forward slash Bitcoin and Markets. The link is also in my bio on Twitter. Twitter Spaces has been not nice to me the last few days, but it seems to be working fine tonight. Maybe it's just like overloaded during noontime, Eastern, <laughs> during the day. But I'm going to cut it there, guys. If you'd like to follow me and ask questions or whatever, comment with the group, you can do that on Telegram. I welcome everybody in there. I also release these on my podcast feed. So if you do miss a day or two, you can go back and listen to those. Just search for Bitcoin and Markets in any podcast app. I am also on Rumble and Odyssey. So I hope to see you guys there. Have a great night and I'll see you tomorrow.